Let us pray. God, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. If you were hosting a dinner party and you could invite anyone, uh, who would it be? What three or four guests would you invite? Have you ever been asked that question? I sometimes go to meetings or conferences or workshops and we're around tables and the facilitator wants to generate some conversation and they pose that question. Almost immediately somebody raises a hand and asks, do they have to be alive? Do they have to be human? Um, but it's an interesting question and you can learn a lot about a person, about what they value and what they're interested in. Um, who would you invite? Now it's Sunday. It's a church, I'm a pastor, so Jesus, of course, is at the top of my list. And maybe let's just stipulate that we would all invite Jesus. But after that, who would you invite? See, opening day of baseball season's on Thursday. So this week, if you ask me, I'm pretty tempted to say Willie Mays, because greatest player ever, and Buck O'Neill, because he's a really good storyteller, and maybe Babe Ruth, just because, you know, Babe Ruth. I might be tempted to invite like Mozart and Ella Fitzgerald and Bruce Springsteen and just make sure there's a lot of instruments in the room, who would you invite? Maybe a grandparent that you never knew, or maybe the relative you're named after, maybe a cousin you don't get to see very often. I don't know. If you're hosting, who would it be? This reading today from John chapter 12, uh, there is a dinner party, and it's a pretty interesting guest list. Jesus, of course, Gospel of John, kind of a no-brainer, uh, Lazarus is there. Lazarus who was raised from the dead. I would like to sit next to that guy. That would be an interesting table conversation. Lazarus not, remember Wesley and uh, Princess Bride who was mostly dead? Lazarus, all dead. So I would like to know, like, did he float above his body? Was there that tunnel of light drawn? I mean, what, what was it all about there? Uh, Plus, you know, if I was a junior hire, I would be really interested in the smell of that story because we're in chapter 11, it said three days in the tomb, it, it was really stinky. So I'd like to know about that. So we got Jesus, got Lazarus, and, and Judas. And if you never read this story before, John makes sure we know that Judas is the one who is about to betray Jesus. I'd like to talk to that guy too. 30 pieces of silver, and in exchange, he's going to become known throughout all of history as the archetypal bad guy. Maybe give that one a second thought, Judas. Uh, it's an intriguing guest list. And there are others. Mary's mentioned. Uh, I'm sure there were family and friends there, probably a few kids over at the kids' table. Uh, but Mary, Mary is the most interesting person at this dinner party. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you know we've uh, met her earlier in Luke chapter 10. Mary's the one who sat at the feet of Jesus while Martha, her sister, dutifully served the meal. Um, in chapter 11 of, of John, just before this story, she's with Jesus when he had raised her brother, Lazarus. And now here, she takes a pound of costly perfume, which could have cost up to a year's wages. At least that's what the footnote of my Bible says. She pours it out on the feet of Jesus. And this is such an extravagant, such a shocking gesture that ever since people have wondered, what was she thinking? And the feet of important guests were often washed at a dinner like this, but not with a pound of costly perfume. We know that she was deeply drawn to Jesus. So maybe this is an expression of, of deep devotion, of love. 
Jesus had brought a brother back to life, so maybe it's a profound act of gratitude. Whatever her reason, though, Judas doesn't care. Judas bluntly asks, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now, we already know Judas is the bad guy in this story, but John underscores it, right? He tells us plainly Judas didn't care about the poor. He was a thief. He kept the purse, and he stole from it. So Judas is the bad guy here. Still a pretty good question, though. Here's wages, a lot of money, could have done a lot of good. Why is she so extravagant? I mean, couldn't she have poured out a little and perfumed the room that way, maybe save the rest, sell the rest? Why so wasteful? It's a good question, but Jesus doesn't answer it. And I think the reason he doesn't answer the question is because the premise of the question is wrong. What he says instead is, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for Passover. He knows the inevitability of what will happen when he gets there. He knows that the powers that be, the religious powers, the political powers, the economic powers, will conspire to kill him. Here at this dinner party, whether Mary fully understands it or not, Jesus knows that she is anointing him for his burial. What happens in Holy Week? Good Friday when Jesus is crucified, Easter Sunday when God raises Christ from the dead, is the center point of the gospel. It is the good news that God spares nothing in loving us, in loving the whole world, in loving all of creation, not even his own son. Jesus embodied the love of God. Jesus showed us what the love of God looks like. He showed us the kind of life that that sort of love makes possible. And for the sake of that love, the persistent, the perfect, the unending, and the unsettling love of God, Jesus endured threats and danger and pain and shame, and he refused to be fearful or reactive. He refused to lash out or retaliate. Even at the end, he forgave the ones who are killing him. Jesus spares nothing in loving us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the extravagance, the lavishness, the abundance, uh, the prodigality of God's love, the love that Jesus embodied. Jesus gave everything for the sake of love. And Mary, in this act of extravagant, abundant faith, gives everything too. God spares nothing for the sake of love. And that's what Judas never understood. Judas premised his life on the assumption of scarcity. And that's really the faulty premise of his question. Judas, it seems, was always afraid there wasn't going to be enough. And so he not only guarded the purse, the common purse, but he stole from it. And soon enough, he'll betray his friend for just a little bit more, 30 pieces of silver. Judas is the classic bad guy here, but we all live in a world that teaches us scarcity. We live in a world, in a culture, in an economy that teaches us to be afraid there won't be enough, and so we learn to be careful and protective and suspicious and frugal and calculating, and that limits our capacity to be generous. It limits our ability to love our neighbor as ourselves. It reminds me of the story of, of the two brothers who worked the farm together. 
After a hard day, they're relaxing under a tree, and the one brother asks, um, says, let me ask you a question. Uh, if you had two fields, would you share one of those fields with the neighbor who needed it? And the other brother said, sure, I'd definitely share that field. He said, well, if you had two houses, would you, sh and you had a would you share one with the neighbor who needed it? He said, sure. If you had two tractors, would you share one with the neighbor who needed it? Sure. If you had two horses, would you share with the neighbor who needed it? No. At first, I was a little surprised. Like, you would share a field, you would share a house, you would share a tractor, but if you had two horses, you wouldn't share it? Why not? And the other brother said, well, I have two horses. <laughs> <laughs> we live in an economy, in a culture, in a world that teaches us to assume scarcity. We're afraid there won't be enough. And if that's the premise of our lives, then Judas's question makes sense. I mean, Mary gave away a year's wages. She should be less careful. Uh, less, um, Less wasteful, she should be more careful. In a world of scarcity, that sort of calculation adds up. But this story, this gospel, teaches us the good news that we live in a world of abundance. That God spared, that God spares nothing in loving us, in loving all of us, in loving all of creation. There's enough, and always enough, enough love and mercy and beauty, enough water and air and earth, enough good gifts for everyone. In God's economy of abundance, Mary's gift makes perfect sense. God spares nothing and neither has Mary. So then the question for us, reading this story all these years later is, what world do you think we live in? A world of scarcity or a world of abundance? Because the way we live in the world depends on the kind of world that we think we live in. And it's a season for turning. It's a season for, for turning, for getting ourselves pointed toward, getting ourselves oriented more toward the way of Jesus. And one of the fundamental reorientations that the gospel calls us to do is, is to move from scarcity toward abundance. And it's an, a reorientation that doesn't come easily. Um, I appreciated very much the, uh, the little reflection that Daryl Ness wrote this week. We've been sending these out early in the week. I hope you had a chance to read it. Um, I asked him if I, could, if I could read just a bit of it, because I thought it was, it was spot on with how, how I was tracking with this story. Bill writes, um, having been raised by children of the Depression, I grew up with an innate sense of scarcity, the idea that there isn't enough for everyone and to grab what I can when I can. I became primarily concerned with what I needed for me and mine, with minimal regard for the potential consequences for others. In my faith journey, I learned the importance of caring for my neighbors that everyone and everything is my neighbor. I learned that I am, that we are, God's hands and feet in the world, and to seek out opportunities to serve. Slowly turning describes my journey as a follower. Old ways die hard, learning to focus on giving didn't, and still doesn't come naturally to me. Grateful every day for God's grace that I didn't earn, that I don't deserve. I serve a generous and patient God who doesn't find fault when I fall short. May I continue to deepen my relationship with God in order to share his life with others. And maybe we all, I mean, it doesn't come easy, but it begins when we open our hearts and our minds and our souls and our fears and our past and our lives, our futures to the abundant, the inexhaustible, the extravagant love of God that was in Christ Jesus. God spares nothing in loving us and asks us to spare nothing in loving each other and loving our neighbors, loving all of our neighbors. 
In the last uh, verse we read uh, this morning, heard this morning, Jesus says, uh, you will always have the poor with you. And he was right. We still do. God's provided enough, enough for everyone. But when we're afraid of scarcity, when we limit the scope of love, then we create systems that sustain cycles of poverty. Sin makes even an economy of abundance inequitable. So we do always have the poor. That's a description of reality. But it also means we always have opportunities to love mercy and to do justice. But even with the best of intentions, I find that I am always susceptible to making calculations based on scarcity. So I'm here a lot at the church. Um, when people come to the door for help, truthfully, I find I very quickly default to suspicion rather than generosity. I worry that I'm being taken advantage of. I worry that it's just good money after bad. I worry that we're getting it, that if people get too used to it, they'll keep coming back. Now it's true, there are times that one has to set parameters, there are times that we have to make choices. But I worry that when we let fear the fear of scarcity take hold, we can end up with an arid, uh, sparse, frugal, pinched faith. This week I was uh, remembering one of my favorite uh, films. Uh, it's Babette's Feast. It was made back in 1987. I, I think, hopefully some of you have seen it. It's a wonderful film. If you haven't seen it yet, you're going to watch it. Spoiler, I'm going to tell you how it goes here. So you might want to not listen to this next part. It's a film about two uh, very elderly, very pious sisters who live in a small remote village uh, in 19th century Denmark. So that's the other thing about the film, subtitles. Their father had been the pastor of an austere sect, but then added many members for a while, and so it had dwindled to a handful of white-haired believers. Well, these sisters take in a woman who comes knocking at their door. Her name is Babette. She's a refugee from the Franco-Prussian War. She becomes their housekeeper. In exchange for a, a safe place to call home, she cooks for them. But she only cooks the simple, bland meals that their strict faith allows. Babette's only link to her former life in Paris is a lottery ticket that a friend buys for her every year. And one year, she gets the news that she has won the lottery, 10,000 francs. And what the sisters don't know about Babette is that in Paris, she had been the head chef of a very famous restaurant. So having won this lottery, she now asks them if she can make a special dinner for them, a royal French dinner, as she puts it, as an expression of gratitude, and sisters agree, and Babette begins to make arrangements. She has a nephew go to Paris to find what she needs. But as the ingredients start to arrive in this small Danish village, they are plentiful, they are sumptuous, they are exotic, and the sisters start to get nervous that this meal is going to become a sinful luxury. And so they gather their small congregation, and they decide that they will respectfully eat what has been offered to them by Babette, but they will not enjoy it under any circumstances, and they won't even say a word about it at the table. You can imagine how the film ends if you haven't yet seen it. As the meal is served, their fears begin to break down. The extravagance of Babette's gift overwhelms the austerity of their frugal faith. 
And by the end, there's much laughter and joy all around the table. Well, at the end of the meal, the sisters assume that with her winnings, Babette will surely go back to her former life in Paris. And that's the point at which she tells them about being a chef at a very famous restaurant. And she tells them that that restaurant in Paris, the meal they've just eaten, would have cost 10,000 francs. She has spent it all. It is an utter extravagance, like Mary pouring out a pound of costly perfume. It's an extravagance that only makes sense in the world of God's abundance. God who spares nothing in loving us asks us to spare nothing in loving others, in loving all others. Now, this isn't new. I mean, this story or a version of this story shows up in all four of the Gospels. We read it pretty much every year. But I find I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded to be more generous and less suspicious, to be more open-hearted and less cautious, to be more extravagant and less fearful uh, and selfish and sometimes just plain cheap. I need to ask, and, and we need to ask, what calculations are we making in life based on the fear of scarcity? And what would it look like? What would be different if we trusted even a little bit more in the abundance of God? Well, as a start, maybe send flowers to someone who's having a tough go of it. You know, flowers are kind of, kind of wasteful. They're probably out of season right now and they're gonna die in a week anyway. That seems like a pretty good extravagance, though. Or maybe indulge in the wastefulness of writing a long letter by hand and sending it to a friend. Or maybe blow two weeks of vacation and volunteer with Mennonite Disaster Service to rebuild houses. <laughs> Our volunteers for MBS, yes. We know who to talk to. Or maybe write a big check to Mennonite Central Committee. And whatever big number you have in mind, double it. Or maybe make a dinner and extend the table, and invite neighbors, and invite friends, and host your own party. God who spares nothing in loving us asks us to spare nothing in loving others. Maybe so. Amen.